today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Cash and Carry Kitchens. At the heart of Irish homes for over 40 years. Cashandcarrykitchens.ie now let's go to our gathering. This week I'm joined by Fine Gael TD for Dublin Rathdown and Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Neil Richmond and Independent TD for Wexford, Verona Murphy, both of whom have managed to make it in and we're very grateful to you for battling the conditions. From our Dáil studio we're joined by Deputy Political Editor with the Irish Examiner Elaine Lachlan and on the line by journalist and organic beef and dairy farmer Hannah Quinn Mulligan and you're both very welcome as well. Verona, you managed to drive up from Wexford this morning, did you? I did as far as Kilmacanog and actually between Coins Cross and Kilmacanog is when it started it took me an hour and 40 minutes um, it is treacherous uh, anybody in a smaller car is going to find it very very difficult the four wheel drives and bigger Jeeps will get traction but I see trucks that are just spinning so I, I would absolutely advise people to stay home if possible if they're out there it's difficult mm-hmm. very, very difficult we're not used to snow and Elaine you were on the roads this morning as well you were out and about what did you see? Yeah, and Claire, I'm glad I had my Weetabix this morning because uh, you certainly need to be driving on a full stomach because I think commuters won't know how long they'll be stuck in cars and vehicles heading into the capital. And the issue as well, as I started off, it took me two hours uh, to get in today and I didn't even manage to get into you, Claire. Apologies for that. Don't worry. I had to uh, divert to the Dáil studio because, as you've heard, the M50 seems to be absolutely bedlam at mm-hmm. the moment um, and even driving on the motorways it's very difficult right now to actually see the lanes which lane you're in because the roads are just full of an icy sludgy slippery mess uh, coming into Dublin and even the footpaths in the city haven't been cleared uh, they're compacting <coughs> at the moment and, and it's really treacherous underfoot and H- Hannah you're are you in the middle of all of that there, there where you are you might explain to us what's happening <laughs> I am. I uh, milked some cows down in Limerick at five o'clock this morning and caught the train and was having a lovely, lovely journey up from sunny Limerick and suddenly the snow hit and we were stuck uh, five kilometres outside Houston Station for the last hour and a half. So the train was an hour and a half late and we were basically told that there are only two tracks now working in Houston Station, uh, one going in and one going out, and about half the station is closed off, is what we were told um, by the official on the train. So I have finally landed in Dublin, um, but it is very, very different weather conditions to what, what we started out with this morning. Okay, And are you in a taxi at the moment? I am in a taxi uh, at, the, at the minute and uh, yeah, road conditions are, are not fantastic but we're battling through. All right, well look, maybe we'll see you in person but if not we'll keep you on the line as we go through all of this and Neil Richmond I was talking to Brandon Cray from Met Erin this morning because I think a lot of people were really taken by surprise in this and he said that snow is notoriously the most difficult meteorological parameter to forecast for in Ireland. They don't use orange warnings lightly um, he said we cannot overwarn, otherwise people won't believe the orange warning when they do come. Right call, do you think? Well, look, I was out this morning at half six and there wasn't even a drop of rain in step aside and all of a sudden I'm bringing the kids to school at half seven and it's torrential snow and I've given a shovel to clear the pathway. So it did come upon really, really quickly and look, the many times I hear people going like, oh, the schools are closed or we're putting out yellow warnings, orange warnings and he is right, you need to use them with accuracy, with care. They are generally used as this and this has come on very, very quickly, very suddenly. Mm. There's eight trucks at the moment out in Dunleer at Down. Temperatures going up, rain's coming down. Hopefully we'll see this 
cleared by tea time. Okay, Verona? I, I, that was one thing. I didn't see anybody from Dublin City Council on my way in. Um, I do think what people have been saying to me coming up in the car is they can forecast climate change for hundreds of years but not snow for Dublin. Look, I think it is just a very unfortunate reality. And I think what's going to be interesting is how electric car drivers perform today. They're full on with wipers, full on with heaters. And I think you know, we're, oh, we may range see problems. anxiety. Well, range and actually, you know, all of the things that take the power. I think it's just going to be interesting to see how it works and if they're able to, you know, clear their journey. Well, let's see what the outlook is. You're, you're saying it's raining now as you were coming in, Neil, was it? Or? It was just as I was coming in the front door there. It's gone above, the car said it was above uh, freezing at the moment. So very much the forecast says it's going to clear. And if we get good heavy rain in, which is actually forecasted indeed, there's a rain warning uh, till, 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 till the rest of the day, till 2am. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that'll be able to clear away because it, it hasn't been freezing out there. Remember when we had the horrible beast from the east or the big snow, the snow came on top of and ice. freeze, yeah. And it was really desperate for days upon end. OK, well, look, I know temperatures are supposed to drop again tonight, so we might see very difficult conditions, but we'll keep across that here at uh, RT. Now, let's move to the news of the week. I just want to come to that Bernardo's report uh, which we heard about earlier in the week. We had Suzanne Connolly from Bernardo's in. They found that 41% of parents are skipping meals or reducing their portions in order to feed their children which is a fairly shocking um, statistic. Do you think Verona that that reflects the reality of, of what families are going through? Because Michael McGrath he said I don't doubt the figures but he was surprised that there hadn't been an uplift in the number of people seeking help from community welfare officers. Well actually Excuse me. I am involved currently with providing the transport for food to a food bank in my own village of Ramsgrange. It would have been unheard of. And I think the amount of people who come to that has increased exponentially. They're of all ages. Some are working, some aren't. The, the reality is, though, it's not a bottomless food bank. You can only get so much. And you will always find that the people who come are catering for their children in the food that they take and that Mm -hmm. they access. So I'm not a bit surprised. I'm very concerned about where the cost of living is going. We've just seen uh, diesel and petrol prices increase again. It was a non-ness. It just didn't need to happen. Uh, Minister McGrath could have staved it off. Uh, The tax take at the moment is having a huge impact because the cost of living is currently increasing exponentially on everything. Yeah, we have so many people working and, you know, that's the striking thing about this, Neil, is that Verona is saying people who are coming to that food bank and probably to many others too are working people. That's a concern. Yeah, we we have a record amount of people working, 2.7 million people, and the average industrial wage is going up exponentially. There's there's good salaries being paid there, but we have seen over the last year or two, 18 months in particular, inflation go very high. I saw in my own brief uh, grocery inflation top out last summer about 16%. It's come down much further. Not but it's enough, still though. Not enough, not at all. But we did obviously get commitments from all the large retailers, which has happened, that where they can make cuts, they have over 700 cuts, particularly on the staple goods. I don't doubt the veracity of this report. It's absolutely shocking uh, for anyone in, in any role, be they in government or, or opposition. It's why we've taken so many measures in terms, despite the Fiscal Advisory Council having a comment, in making sure that we provided extra payments that those who needed the most, that we increased uh, social welfare benefits, that we increased one-off payments, be, and we also broadened out you know, ch- uh, the child allowance to include 18-year-olds this year, because we know people are struggling. But it's also, Claire, why we introduced uh, a, a relatively small tax cut and why many Many of the people that need to be, and there's been yeah. criticisms in this, but Just I think it's important to tease out, many of the people who are finding themselves 
uh, most affected are the squeeze middle who don't on paper qualify uh, for any see, additional resources okay, or supports so, so on that, but they are pay, they're I'm, earning high salaries was, paying high tax okay, and they was, need a bit of help I was talking to Michael McGrath about that because he made a commitment during a speech a little while ago about cutting tax in the next budget Suzanne Connolly from Bernardo says the help just isn't targeted enough and on that you know on that commitment to cut tax we have foster carers in this country and the number of foster carers are reducing all of the time they haven't had an increase since 2009 they were promised something in the budget for 2024 but it's not coming into effect in December surely they're the people we should be helping first rather than promising tax cuts for budget 2025 but they are the people we're targeting first if you look at the cost of living measures that were taken if you look at the changes in terms of social welfare if you look at what is going to be coming in uh, for fosters carers it needs to happen quicker of course but there is also a small cohort who don't benefit for any of these who are finding they're both working they're in good jobs but there just isn't enough money at the end of the month because interest rates beyond the government's control are going up the cost of living is going up they need a little bit of help as well we are not saying we're prioritizing tax cuts indeed it's the opposite we're doing a very small tax cut on income tax and USC, less than €1,000 per annum in last year's budget, but very welcome for mm. many people. But the promise but is there are going to be more. significant tax cuts in, in the next budget. Like that's, seen, that's electioneering, isn't see, it? We've seen far greater increases in social welfare paying and funding to the agencies that need uh, that are needed to provide these support. It's always been a balance. The government in our programme for government said it'll always be two to three in terms of spending increases uh, to one part tax cuts. And we'll continue with that mm-hmm. because we need to make sure that every including the squeeze middle are supported too. Okay, Elaine, what's your take on on what we saw from Bernardo's on the one side and then the commitment to cut tax on the other? Yeah, and I pick up on a, a word that Neil used there about people being on good salaries and that is the case now. And I think maybe 18 months ago in the wake of the war in Ukraine when we saw, you know, grocery prices massively escalate, you know, spike in fuel, spike in energy, spike in electricity prices. Everybody got a bit of a hop because it was an immediate increase in their outgoings every month. I think a lot of people have adjusted to that. Uh, People are on good salaries. You see the brand new cars, not on the roads today, but you see them out there, uh, people going on holidays. But then there's a separate cohort who are really struggling, who have not adjusted to this as the normal rate of household outgoings each month and are really struggling. And they're probably, to some extent, a hidden cohort and maybe don't have as loud a voice to shout for what they really require now and are really struggling. Um, And I know... uh, Neil has pointed to the fact that, you know, social protection payments, social welfare payments have increased. But really, there has been a lack of targeting. When you look at the energy credits, even the rent credit, it, it okay, it goes to renters, but it goes to all renters, regardless of whether you're really struggling mm-hmm. or you can afford what are, it has to be said, a lot of the time, massive rents, but still not targeted. They're across the board payments and they're helping the person in the, the brand new car as much as they're helping the person who's really struggling and is prioritising their children ahead of themselves and perhaps going hungry at night. Okay, um, I want to move to the nature restoration law because I'm watching the clock and Hannah, with your expertise, I really want to talk to you about this. We know it was passed at the European Parliament despite all of those uh, objections and protests from farmers. How is it being viewed on the ground? Are Are people very concerned about it or in some farming quarters is it being welcomed? 
People are very concerned about it, but I actually think there's a much more divided opinion than perhaps the large farm organisations are just coming out with. I have spoken to some farmers who welcome the nature restoration law. Um, obviously, then there are other farmers who are very concerned, farmers who are renting land or farming in land in kind of peatland areas. Because I guess the main concern about this, I mean, while it does say, you know, we need to restore 20% of land and sea habitats, uh, by 2030, um, one of the main issues of concern is bog rewetting. And basically what the law states is that by 2050, 50% of peatlands will have to have some restorative measures in place and a third of that 50% will need to be rewetted. If you take, for example, Ireland, 69% of peatlands are in private ownership. So that does mean that something's going to have to be done for private landowners and farmers in terms of what schemes are going to be put so in place. Th- and that is land that farmers over generations would have cleared and irrigated and used for farming? And would have been incentivised to do so and yeah. are actually still incentivised to do so under current tax tax rules as well. You can claim that back on land for, for draining it. Um, you know, but that's part, part of this issue. There, there needs to be some long-term thinking here and that mm-hmm. needs to be explained very clearly to farmers. There's two years now to get a draft plan in place and something's going to have to be rolled but out. The farmers aren't going to, the farmers who own that land privately, the peatlands, they're not going to be asked to do that until the state deals with their land and that'll be Borden Mona who, who deals with that and that'll take us up to 20 2030, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. And I guess the Green Party have stressed that no one will be forced to re-wet their land. Minister Malcolm Noonan has said that there's a 3.2 billion euro climate and nature restoration fund and part of those funds will potentially be used to incentivise yeah. farmers. Um, but I mean, it does have to be shown how this is going to be done. Bordenamona has a, a programme in place to re-wet 33,000 hectares of bog currently, but there are farmers who are bordering on those areas who are saying they have issues already with that. Yeah, see the problem with this, uh, Neil, as we discovered during the week when we were talking about it, is that farmers don't know what's coming down the track. So, until this law was passed, we couldn't get down to negotiating what they would get in terms of compensation and supports. That seems to be a real problem. It's the uncertainty. Yeah, and that, that's understandable and it's particularly a very emotive issue and I understand that I, I met um, farmers in Roscommon when I was down there on Monday and they're going like, we put, particularly in that part of the world, we put a lot of effort into reclaiming land over generations yeah. the family had and it is their land. There was an emotive attraction, uh, attachment to land in this country. We all understand that. But the passing of this law at a European level now gives us the responsibility as a government, as a member state, to get down into that detail, to state how we're going to achieve it. The first priority, of course, is to maximise everything we can do on state land and then ensure that there's adequate compensation in a sustainable way for farmers who have their land in private. And there will be some in private who will need to be play their part in this. We're going to adequately compensate it. We're going to ensure there's a just transition. And equally, we're not going to force anyone to do this. Does that have a an impact where you are in Wexford. Much reclaimed land down there. Well, yes, but not from bogs. So not, I think not as much as not there, as are, there much. is from where I come from. No, and I think, but at the same time, the farming communities would be quite concerned as to how it will be rolled out domestically. I don't think there's any uh, notion that it could be done voluntarily uh, without subsidy. But I do think for the farmers, 
it's the fear of the unknown and it's can they trust what they hear today. Um, there's no just transition like there should be for farmers. I think that's the problem. Everybody wants to be involved in climate change and farmers already do an enormous amount. Their problem is it's the pace at which the actual agricultural sector is expected to compensate over and above every other sector. Mm-hmm. This is a, a problem, isn't it, Elaine, for government across the board? This uh, nature restoration law now passed and the action has to follow on from that. Yes, certainly. And I think Hannah raised a good point there. You know, we have seen previously where farmers have been incentivised through other schemes to do the exact opposite of what potentially they're being asked to do now. And they went along with it because, as I said, the supports were there, the incentives were there. Um, But you have to recognise that farmers are already doing a lot for the environment. A lot of farmers have signed up to various EU schemes, whether it's the Gloss scheme or other schemes, uh, to protect their land and change how they farm. And farmers know that the land is their asset. They know that they need to protect, they need to maintain it, uh, to gr- whether it's to grow crops, whether it's to feed animals. Um, they know that the land has to be protected. And wh- when there are schemes that incentivise them to change how they uh, maintain their land or how they treat their land, I think they'll go along with mm-hmm. it because at the end of the day, farmers are business people. And we saw it a number of years ago when a lot of tillage farmers moved into dairy because dairy dairy was more lucrative. Um, So it will be about education, encouragement and most importantly, I think, supports. And Hannah, what we saw in Europe with the protests in France and Germany, and we did have a protest here on Monday in Cork, but the farmers just haven't taken to the streets here in the way they have in those other two countries I mentioned. Why is that and do you think it's coming? I think it potentially could be coming depending on the reaction that they get. I mean, the IFA is currently mounting a That Enough is Enough campaign and they're lobbying local local councils at the minute ahead of the upcoming elections. I think there's a lot of farmer anger about the traditional parties and how they voted um, in the nature restoration law. Um, I I think there's going to be some heated debates um, for the MEPs coming up. Uh, That hasn't been taken very well. But I also think that there is a thing there that there are farmers out there who have welcomed this and who are aware that, you know, the bogs in Ireland are the equivalent of our Amazon rainforest. And if potentially the government could find a way to encourage farmers, incentivise them to re-wet, uh, re-wet their land, then many farmers might actually be happy to do it. Mm-hmm. Political um, consternation in your own party about this as well, because your MEPs went against the EPP, the group that you belong uh, to, and they voted with this. But then Patrick O'Donovan, your party colleague, was really upset about that. Disappointed, to put it mildly, he said, because we've schemes that are bogged down and environmental restrictions and regulation where it's clear that the preference and priority is to protect the habitat over protecting people's houses. What do you say to that? Look, I understand uh, Patrick's frustration, particularly with other schemes, and he's done an amazing job as Minister for, at the OPW in relation to flood remediation schemes across the country. But ultimately, I fundamentally back our MEPs. You know, three of our five MEPs are working farmers as well. They are the, they are part of that custodian of the lands group of people who know this has to be done to improve our mm-hmm. environment, to restore habitats. And now is the opportunity for all elected representatives, particularly those of us in government, particularly those of us in the Oireachtas, to make sure that the schemes are in place that are 
workable, uh, that reward farmers uh, in, an, in a way that is equitable and that absolutely now is the time for the real work to begin. We've seen a lot of effort go on uh, by Irish ministers at a European Council level to make sure this restoration law is effective. I take issue with the EPP and I'm, I've been very involved in European politics for a long time. The EPP group has a very different whip system than we'd be used to in the Oireachtas. We vote against the group, the group votes against us lots of times. And you're still comfortable being part of that group? Oh very much. We're founding members of that group and we want to be at the heart of Europe. We want to be the heart of the EPP. There's a reason why uh, Mairead McGuinness and Francis Fitzgerald have been vice presidents of that group in the last five years because we are serious players and members of that group and by default as it's the biggest group in Europe in terms of European politics. Okay, um, now I want to move briefly to RT because as we sit here we know that the media minister Catherine Martin is meeting with the board of RT minus the chair as we know Shun uh, Nirahali has gone since last week. Elaine, can I come to you on this? Catherine Martin has been very much at the centre of this since her appearance on primetime Thursday of last week. Do you think she has weathered the storm? I think so and timing is everything but really Claire like I was tearing my hair out crawling into traffic this morning uh, but I think listening to the three hours of that committee meeting this week was equally as frustrating because the entire country is now sick sore and tired of hearing about RT and the staff I'm sure are the same um, having to go in day in day out and talk about how bad the organisation is and the failings of the organisation but I think as I said timing is everything we are in the year of elections we have certainly have local and European elections coming up and possibly uh, a general election so I don't think the government wants to fall uh, mm-hmm. on its own as a result of its own controversy. Yeah, Verona is here of course member of the Public Accounts Committee. Your report on RTE is out next week is it? Next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Look I think all the controversy I have very little to say on it because just like Elaine said people in my constituency just want everybody to get on with it. I think there's real concern as to where RTE will go from here. We do need a national public broadcaster, absolutely. But what people want to see is a structure in place, whether it be exchequer funding or licence funding. But there has to be accountability when that funding is misspent. Are are you very firmly of the view that it should be under the control of the Comptroller and Auditor General? That is a recommendation, a well-known recommendation of the report. And as a member of the PAC committee, I understand the work we do. And I think that is the most important aspect of our report. It needs to come back in under the Comptroller and Auditor General. There would be full emphasis each year. Um, And from that, we make recommendations where we expect accountability. And look, since 2016, the Comptroller and Auditor General gave was a copy yesterday of a report that was issued with regard to public pay sector and and um, exit packages and whether or not there should be non-disclosure agreements for those exit packages with public monies being spent and the recommendation was that there shouldn't and that's another firm belief we cannot expect to enter into non-disclosure arrangements where public monies are okay. f- footing the bill. Neil you support that in the last couple of seconds that we have? Yeah, largely, absolutely. There's a bit more detail to go through, but particularly in relation to the Comptroller and Order General, I think that's something that needs to be looked at. All right, well, we'll hear more about that when that uh, Public Accounts Committee report is published next week. Thank you all for coming in. Well, two of you for coming in and two of you for struggling valiantly, as I said to our, our gardener and our DIY expert earlier. Thank you very much to Hannah Quinn Mulligan, who did her very best to get here, and also to Elaine Lachlan, who made it as far as the doll today, and to Verona Murphy and Neil Richmond.